Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. This afternoon, I'm sitting talking with James Cheshire, the author of The Atlas of the Invisible. It's been quite a long time that I've known James, probably a decade now we've known each other, from early state of the maps and geomobs and geocommunity events. And today he's a world-renowned cartographer, a multiple award winner, a serial author, and a professor at University College London. So, James, first of all, welcome to the Geomob podcast. It's really great to have you here. Particular bonus for me because I've just loved this book. So the, getting the chance to talk to you about this book and share it with our listeners is a fantastic thing. So welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks, Steve, for having me. It's my pleasure. really is. So before we get to the book, tell our listeners just a little bit about your journey in geo, how you get to write three books and be a professor at UCL. I started out actually as a physical geographer. So as an undergraduate, I really wanted to learn about, you know, glaciers and rivers and mountains and that kind of thing. And I was all set really for going off into that kind of area, you know, thinking about the polar regions and things like that. But I became increasingly interested, particularly towards the end of my degree, about how you might uh, work with kind of complicated data sets how you might visualize and how you might map them. And I think that's what drew me to UCL, where I applied for and was fortunate to be accepted onto a a PhD that was looking at uh, surname maps and distributions of people's names and what that says about them or where they're from and their ancestry and, and so on. And that kind of set me off on this path of thinking about big data and thinking about how we visualize it. And what really crystallized it for me was getting an approach from National Geographic magazine and a chap named Oliver Ruberti, who has subsequently become my long-term collaborator and co-author in all the books. And uh, they were really interested in how you visualize some names for North America. They were creating a map of North American names. And working on that project, I mean, it was a very small part I played. I mean, I just provided them with the data they needed, but seeing the end product was really inspirational and and that kind of got me thinking more about data visualization so I started working on those kinds of things as a kind of a side project started blogging started the mapping london blog with ollie o'brien and people were getting more and more interested in in this work and that's what led to first book um, where I actually collaborated with oliver berti looking at maps of london book called london the information capital and you know we've never looked back from that point really i think we work tremendously well together and it's made a huge difference being able to, you know, he and I have been working together for nearly a decade now, taking new and interesting data sets and, and kind of mapping them as, as best we can. Great. So I remember those those early maps that you were making of people's surnames. And it was fascinating just to see some of the revelations that you could get out of just looking at people's surnames and where they lived and tracing that back to their ancestry and everything. It was a bit scary as well, I think, at times in those days, you know, the fact that you could actually start to deduce things just from somebody's name when they filled it into a form. But it was, yeah, it was an early start. And So let's get to the book because that's what we're here for. And in the book, you say, and I'm quoting here, for centuries, 
atlases depicted what people could see, roads, rivers, mountains. Today, we need graphics to reveal the invisible patterns that shape our lives. Explain a little bit about the book and what prompted you and Oliver to write it. Well, the idea behind it really is that maps are one of the best tools, I guess, we have available to us to kind of chart our way to our future, really, which is a future that's surrounded by data that's you know, has all these uncertainties and challenges ahead of it, and that data within it can provide us with some important answers to, to the questions we, we're asking of it. But it can be quite challenging uh, to see those things and actually challenging, I think, to understand the extent to which different data sets are being collected. So one of the examples that, you know, I, I like got me really thinking on this was, you know, you could take yourself completely off grid. You could throw your phone into the sea. You could live on a <laughs> desert island. But there's a satellite that would detect your campfire. So someone would know that there was some life, some habitation in that area. And it, it gets you thinking about all these hidden data traces that we we leave behind and the way that data can act as a way of capturing things at a given moment in time, providing a record, but also enabling us to kind of zoom in or, or zoom out and, and, and things like that. And really the, the point about the historic atlases is, is that actually there were some big moves in the eight, from the 1850s onwards to, to create more maps and graphics surrounded by data. But these things were expensive and they were complicated and, and they took a lot of effort and they slowly, you know, entire atlases full of statistics kind of shrunk down in size and you've got a few at the front pages of, of, of yeah. a, if you've got a Times Atlas or something. But most of it was just where things were. And, of course, we don't need that now, really. You know, the, the navigational aspects, the, you know, oh, wow, you know, look how far away this country is or how might we get there and all that kind of thing. You know, we can just do that on our phones. So what future is there for for kind of atlases and maps? Well, I think we we argue that there's a future in revealing these hidden patterns in in the data that that's being collected. Right, and so what was it like writing this book during lockdown? Because you've written the whole book through a lockdown virtually, haven't you? What were the challenges? Well, Oliver and I are old hands at remote working, so he throughout the time I've known him, he's been based first in Michigan and then in Los Angeles, and so the way that we would work is lots of video calling and then he would do a longer visit with me or I'd do a longer visit with him of one or two weeks and it would be an intensive period of work where we would be able to tackle some of the really tricky problems we were working on and so in terms of this book yeah the the pandemic it's been four years work so the pandemic was the last year of, of that project and we were lucky Oliver made it to London in February 2020 so he was there just as the first cases were emerging and so we got that intensive work period done and then since uh, since then it's been kind of business as usual for us kind of working remotely so right. we schedule calls we speak twice a week and I think it we're just incredibly fortunate that working in this way for so long you know we've kind of got the hang of it yeah. so gotcha. just made a big difference. So there's about I don't know 80 or 90 spreads in the book something of that order are they all joint efforts or are some yours and some Oliver's they're 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 joint efforts so we would each have I mean there's some 
ideas obviously that you know mm. we have had the ideas independently and we kind of put them into the the hat and discuss mm. what what's a good idea what's a bad idea and and some of you know the broader questions with, that we're keen to answer but i think one of the important ways that we work is entirely collaboratively and you really have to do that to create the kind of maps that we aspire to create so traditionally i suppose an academic like me might produce a whole load of map, package them up and then ship them off to a designer who then has this job of trying to make them look good for a book. And right. there's no conversation there, really. Whereas with us, you know, even things like the size of the map on the page, Oliver would determine that when he's doing the design. But then we might have to revisit how generalized the coastlines are or how big the grid cells are we're using, in which case that comes, you know, the ball's then back in my court to then reprocess the data in such a way that it then looks its best on the page so that back and forth is really important in order for us to kind of get the best we can uh, on each each of the spreads that we we feature so you're doing the gi and he's doing the illustrator is that sort of it yeah in in kind of crude crude terms i'm working in qgis bit of ArcGIS, R, data, various databases, Postgres, and, and all the rest of it, doing the, the, the crunching and getting it to a point where there's exported maps in a kind of a PDF format or something. Yeah. The geeky and then, stuff. Yeah, and then over to Oliver, who then creates the the layouts and the designs, so the colors, right. you know. And so the stuff I send to him looks pretty terrible, but it's in a format that he can work with and make brilliant. Well, the stuff he puts on the page is absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's beautiful. You know, every page is beautiful in this book. And I got to say to the listeners, you've just got to go and buy this book. It is the book that you want somebody to give you for Christmas. James will be delighted if you buy a copy, and I promise you won't be disappointed. So the book's set out in four sections. They're called Where We've Been, Who We Are, How We're Doing, and What We Face. What prompted the choice of those four categories? It's a good question. I mean, they came, I think, fairly late in the process. So you chose the maps that you were going to create and then retrofitted the titles to create four sort of groups for them. Yeah. So the, the way that we the way that we work is we spend a lot of time, you know, the, the, this book compared to with our previous two books, there's, there's one on London and also one called Where the Animals Go, which is about animal movement. I think we had a very clear vision from the outset about what bits we wanted to capture and how we were going to do it. Atlas and the Invisible took a little bit longer for its kind of shape to appear. We we knew we wanted to do something on sort of the power and peril of new forms of data. And we knew that we wanted to do something that was obviously map based and, and, and reinventing the Atlas and that kind of thing. And so we just set off creating maps and and spreads and then what we do is we call them book maps so basically every single page is of the book is like a thumbnail and it starts out like an empty it's an empty box and then we start to populate the boxes with the spreads and then we shuffle them around and see with the themes that emerge and for us those were the themes that you know most of the graphics ah. sit, sat within and they're also the kind of inspiration for Uh, opening chapter essay so as well as just standalone maps and graphics we've got some slightly longer essays where we talk about some of the concepts and things that might you know relate to the topics that we we tackle in the in the chapter 
So you had to learn a lot about quite a lot of topics to write these sections. I mean, this isn't the sort of basic stuff that you as a geographer or Oliver as a graphic designer are, are going to know about, I would have thought. Yeah, the amount of effort to create the graphics and, and the, the narrative stories that go alongside them was, you know, significantly higher than actually probably in our previous two books in a way. So, you know, each London, the information capital took maybe a year, a bit more than a year to create where the animals go was maybe a year to 18 months. You know, we then took four years on this and actually a, a huge amount of that time was spent reading, researching, having ideas kind of coalesce a bit more and getting into some the real depth in some of the issues and the topics that that, that, that we cover. Um, and I think that's the most, one of the things I'm probably most proud of, actually, and, and hopefully what makes, I'm hoping that people will read this book, even, you know, who are experts in mapping. There's new stuff in there. There's new stories that they won't have heard about and the history of map making and all that kind of thing that we've been able to dig out. Absolutely. And I have to say, you know, I just finished reading a great book by a friend of ours, Ken Field, on cartography and thematic mapping. And then I turned to this, and this is completely different. This is a book with a narrative that is a serious narrative about topics that are important, all all different topics, which is illustrated with beautiful maps. But it's a book with maps. It's not a book of maps. And I, you know, I think the narrative is what makes the book so compelling, you know, and the topics that you've chosen. Give a couple of examples of some of the slightly unusual topics that you've chosen. That you Well, I mean, I think in terms of the work that I think was most interesting, uh, well, no, that's not quite true. I mean, the, the topics that I think are took the most work to get to, I think, and that surprised, you know, that I was kind of keen that we have as kind of major takeaways from the book. I mean, I think we've worked hard to put alternative, not even alternative, but kind of more depth to some of the histories of, say, thematic mapping. So, for example, mm. you know, the history of mapping people, you know, it often refer, goes back to Charles Booth in London and his poverty right. maps. But we've actually gone on to talk about the Hull House maps and people like Florence Kelly who were inspired by booth to create their own versions in chicago which then inspired sociologist called web du bois who was this big civil rights pioneer to do his own maps of boston and american cities which then led to these other amazing maps and data visualizations mm. that that he created which then fed into the civil rights movement and, and and so on and so citing those examples i think fleshes out some of that history that we don't often talk about I think going through some of the topics like, you know, the, the, the final essay is about early weather forecasting and how do you work out how to map the weather, you know, which was yeah. conventionally thought of as a, an act of God. And yeah. there was a huge amount of scepticism around mapping the weather and relating that to the same conversations we're having about climate change now. You know, there was a refusal to alert people to hurricanes you know, it's the same kind of scepticism that, you know, climate sceptics and others have today. Yeah. So kind of extending those lines of narrative from, you know, the really pioneering stuff that happened through to the stuff that's, that, that we're experiencing today has been a real joy uh, for this book. 
And some of it, you know, I just found fascinating. The stuff about racial segregation in American cities, for example, you know, I mean, you sort of know it and you know the concept of redlining the city and all of that. But when you actually see those early maps and then you see the new maps that you've made that extend on that, I mean, it's just so powerful. And I learned so much about hurricane forecasting, for example, and how it all started. It's just a brilliant book and a brilliant read. But the thing about this book is that it's not just maps. There's the narrative sections that we've talked about, but there's there are also sections where there's no map or there's just a chart and others where the map is only used as a key to the chart, which is at least to me, a really new approach, but incredibly effective. Is that something that you and Oliver first came upon? Because I've never seen it done before. It's a, a good question. I don't know. I mean, for us, it's something that is quite a natural thing to do. So if we have a chart that we've coloured by country, like the dots yeah. on it, you know, or whatever the lines, you know, being able, being able to then have a locator map with the countries filled in that way, I think helps people orientate themselves to it and much more quickly. I mean, and I think that's something that we're always really eager to do is be able to get people as quickly as possible into the centre of the map and to be able to relate themselves, you know, where they are in the map or how they can relate to it or where we are in the world and that kind of thing. And particularly, you know, we've we've got maps of every co- from every continent in the book. So, you know, trying to get people to unfamiliar parts of the world and all that kind of stuff is really important. And so these little inset maps have become a, a really great sort of grounding force w- within the book, I think. It really works well. And I mean, just to sort of the converse to this is whatever the topic that you're mapping, if you're mapping it on a global basis and perhaps you're sort of looking at on a continental basis, classic way of thematic mapping would be to have a map possibly in Web Mercator or um, one of the other projections and then to use some kind of colouring to indicate the variable for each of the continents. What you do is produce a chart, beautiful charts, and you colour the bars or the segments of the chart for each of those continents. And it's massively more effective because what you're really focused on is the data and the disparities in the data. And then you just use the key to understand that that's North America, that's Africa, that's Australasia or whatever it is. I think it's a brilliant technique. And it just reminds me that sometimes we slap things on maps when a chart is actually a much better way of presenting them. And I'm guessing that that's partly Oliver's influence. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think his long history at the likes of National Geographic before we started collaborating and stuff, I think was a good, clear training. And and, and I think also we have, you know, we're, we're trying to make it as easy as possible for people to make the comparisons in the data. And you're right, sometimes, you know, a path map, particularly if it's only for a few countries or if it's over, you know, large areas and things, you don't always need it, actually. You know, people can quickly work out where the countries are and as you say it's the ordering of the data it's the the relative size of the date you know whatever the value we're looking at is that's what's important and i think it also adds some visual variety for people you know rather than just turning every page and every map looking the same adding that variety i think makes it more interesting and kind of adds a nice pace to to the book itself it definitely does so and you know that we've got to do this. You have to choose a favourite map and 
describe it and say why it was your favourite? Well, yeah, it's hard. Uh, I, 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 so the, the the map that I was most shocked by and put, you know, we, we put a huge amount into was uh, there's a data set online that's uh, it's called the Thor, which stands for Theatre Operations of War data set that's released by the the US military and has been digitised and it shows the historic bombing that happened in Vietnam but also in Cambodia, and I was ignorant to the extent to which that the US military were bombed, launched bombing campaigns in Cambodia as part of the Vietnam War. And so Cambodia has this enormous problem with people stepping on unexploded ordnance, becoming, you know, paralyzed or worse, losing limbs. And so the, the data set, the reason it was released was in order for people to help find some of these bombs and to try and get to them before uh, someone steps on them but it just struck me as a it was a real challenge to kind of pick out some of the key stories and the narrative within it you know enabling people to see how there was successive waves of missions that the US that that, that Nixon effectively authorized to kind of be respectful of the fact that this is each bomb probably killed someone or is threatening to kill someone um, if it's unexploded and also then being able to zoom in on a particular Battle in Vietnam, Battle of Quezon, and again, just looking at the data alone, the locations of bombs, where they were dropped, and when, how that revealed the narrative of the battle and what was happening. You know, it was for me, it was a, a real journey of, you know, you can look at the points on the map, but then in order to then explain it, you, you know, we had to watch hours of footage of U.S. military documentaries and reading all these reports of the sorties that were flown and all that kind of stuff to then help piece together what happened and, and help readers follow what yeah. happened um, and turn that into a narrative yes yeah 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 so yeah that was a very moving map and quite a complex map yeah there's a, a huge amount of and there's a, and, and that's an example of actually where more data was left on my hard drive than made it to the final map just because of the extent of the data cleaning and filtering and narrowing down that we had to do in order to make something that was so vast, more comprehensible yeah. for, for people looking at the book. So I get to choose one map that I want to ask about, and you know which one it's going to be because we met, I mentioned it before we started recording. There's a map called Eyewitness Cartography. When I received the book, I sat down to start reading it, and it's very near the beginning in the opening section. And I came to this map, and I just gasped. I'm, it's a map of two people's journeys during the Holocaust. And I'm familiar with Martin Gilbert's work mapping the Holocaust, but this was so much more powerful. This was so much more powerful than those big sweeping arrows and 100,000 people died here, half a million people died there. Can you describe that map a little bit for our listeners and explain what I felt was a very non-geographic approach to making a map. Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the things that we wanted to achieve with the book was some acknowledgement that maps can be a bit sterile in the way that they produce, you know, visions of the world. So, so you know, if you're mapping the movements of enslaved people across an ocean, which is one of the, the graphics we have, you know, there's no way that you are going to be able to uh, capture the horrors of th those events. You know, it's one of the big criticisms of 
cartography often is that it somehow sanitizes things and it's also the tool that is used to facilitate some of these atrocities in a way you know the the in, in the case of uh, nazi germany you know they were big users of maps to to chart where people were in order that they could uh, follow Fine. through with with exactly follow through with their, their, their horrendous actions and so we wanted to demonstrate that there are new ways we can think about maps and, and how they can convey just a, a small part of some of the lived experiences of, of, of people. And actually, this particular map was created originally by an academic in the US, a historical geographer called um, Anne Kelly Knowles, who had been doing a lot of work with mapping history, the Holocaust being one part of uh, that she's been interested in and assistant at the time a guy called uh, levy westerfield who, who works in uh, and lives in, in norway and i first saw this map at a conference in the u.s it was at the association of american geographers conference and it was huge it was a2 maybe even a1 size and what it conveyed was this narrative that they'd extracted from two sets of transcripts from two Holocaust survivors, some called Jacob Brodman and, and one called Anna uh, Patipa. And Anna and Levi's uh, kind of approach has been to see how you can kind of transform maps to represent a lived experience rather than a Cartesian experience. So in a sense, knowing the precise locations of places isn't that useful for telling this story. What's important is how prominent these places are in people's minds when they convey the story. So, you know, in relaying some of the horrors that they experienced, you know, there are certain places, it may have been a, a dining table or it may have been a, a small room that were big parts of, of the, the survivors' lives. And so that they became big parts of the map. And then the long journeys across, you know, Poland into Germany and, and so on they they can get compressed and in order to then free up the space for you know life in whichever camp they ended up in and so on and so it was I think a really important map for us to include because I think it was one that as you've you know as you you say Steve I mean it, it, it it's a very emotive one it really gets to the heart of just two stories of millions but it it's a way of showing that maps can be used in this way beyond kind of sanitized numbers yeah. you know as you say kind of broad arrows on a map or something like that I, and i think i mean there's a lesson to learn from this that uh, and i think you mentioned it in the in the book you mentioned it about mapping covid as well and that you know when we start to record four million people who've died through covid they just become a lot of dots and then we aggregate those dots into blobs and actually each of those is an individual life and they've got a family and they've got friends and everything and this approach where this micro approach of taking two survivors of the holocaust and just following their journey and sort of using their contemporaneous notes or whatever it is or recollections of that thing it's just so so powerful just loved it and uh ken feels very jealous because you've got fold-out spreads as well and this is one of those fold-out spreads yeah we're incredibly fortunate that our publishers allow us to have these gatefolds yeah. where they're where they're needed and this was definitely one that yeah. absolutely needed that yeah 
Brilliant. So just starting to draw to a close, James, I got to the end of the book and there's a chapter about map projections, which I mean, I'd expect from a a cartographer, you know, to be considering map projections. But actually, you use, you know, you use a lot of different projections, you know, yeah. There's no, I don't think there's any web Mercator unless it's in some of those little index maps. And you're using equal area and you're using all sorts of projections for each each map. Was it obvious to you and Oliver which projection to choose for each topic? Or did you have debate about that? So there's a few cases where we were reflecting constraints so basically you know we had a certain shape that needed filling on the page and certain projections help with that right you know we had a few rules so mostly the inset maps use the same spherical kind of winkle triple projection there's a few cases that we saw we were kind of inspired by like um the spillhouse projection which is an ocean focused yeah. one in fact we've got two so uh, there are actually two spillhouse projections in, in, in the book uh, because he was so great at showing oceanographic data. So if you're sh- kind of sh- trying to show like overfishing, then that seems like a perfect, perfect projection to use. And, and I think there are other cases where you can add so much dynamism to a map just by projecting it a certain way. So the, the, the fishing is another example. So the global fishing map, We've, we've got over two pages, and I think we use three projections for. And it just adds, helps people. It looks dynamic, and it kind of helps people see what's, what's going on much more quickly and, and in a kind of more interesting way. And, and I think projections are generally underused as a tool of, you know, one of the strap lines of the, you know, strap line of the book, you know, to change how you see the world. And I think that is a way of getting people to refocus on their perception of yeah. what the world looks like and so that was you know i really enjoy them and, and and the section at the back is actually a nod to some of these historic atlases which yeah if you look at a bartholomew atlas there'll always be oh. a section on the map projections and some new map projection yeah. they've developed for oh. that particular atlas oh i remember that yeah from my school atlas exactly and i think actually it made me realise that we've become so conditioned to see maps in a flat, rectangular format of some sort, you know, on a page, on a screen, that we forget. And they all look much the same, you know, and whether it's a Mercator or a, an equal area projection or something. Yeah, yeah, I know there are differences in them, but they're all sort of these same flat rectangular projections. And when you see some of the projections in this book, which is trying to illuminate some of the patterns of what's going on on the world, you also realise that there are different ways of seeing the planet that we live on. And, you know, so I think that the fact that there is this varied choice of projections in itself is an educational tool, which... Um, Certainly, I benefited from some of those projections are in that great drop, long drop down that you get when you open QGIS or ArcGIS and start a project. But I've never even had a clue why I would think about using any of them. But, you know, like you said, when you're mapping the oceans, it makes an incredible difference. It, it does. I was, I was going to say that it also is another nice nod to some of the, you know, if you look at atlases in the 1950s, 40s, 50s, they polar projections were used all the time or some kind of spherical one mm. because they were trying to explain to people why it's quicker in the in the 
coming era of mass air travel that planes going over the North Pole is a shortcut rather than going round round the earth or and you know there's lots of comparisons between like steamships and how you know how they fared and 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 I think because of software convenience because software has pushed us to certain map projections and particularly web the case of the online stuff it sucked out a little bit of that ingenuity and and I think that's one of the great things about working with you know, design like Oliver on equal footing, but also being able to print the book is we can make those decisions and actually we can stick these interesting looking things on the page and hopefully, you know, use them as an artistic tool as well. I mean, at the final projection mentioned maybe that even our end papers are <laughs> tessellating earths, you know, which go on yeah. forever, you know, and so you can it's just fun things like that, you know, enable yeah. you. The map projections enable you to do. Yeah, the the end papers are. I spent ages looking at them, trying to work out what you'd done there. Uh, they really are a treat, and I think we should leave them for pe- for our listeners to actually go and buy the book to see the end papers because it's worth it. I'm going to say it once more, everybody. This is the Christmas present you don't want to miss out on. James, where can people get this book? Uh, it's in all good bookshops so yeah anywhere that you uh, can buy books from normally we've got uh, in stock so if there's anyone the uk it came out um the beginning of september if there's anyone listening in the us then it comes out on the 9th of november so there's a little bit of a wait for the us edition and then actually we have a few international editions lined up uh, for 2022 so there are going to be different translations as well um, which i'm right. excited to see oh exciting so the last question, oh, the penultimate question. I was going to ask you the last question, but the penultimate question. You've now written, you started with a book about London, then one about animal animal migrations, now the Atlas of the Invisible. The obvious question, what's next? So it's a good question. It's an obvious question, as you say, but it doesn't have an obvious answer at the moment. Uh, for me i think um we've got a few i've got a few ideas and oliver has a few ideas and we're always excited by the next project we're currently beavering away actually making a lot of maps on another book project with some other uh, authors so once that's done then who knows but um it's it's been a real joy to see the finished version of Atlas of the Invisible, and I'm hope I'm just convinced myself that it's. I just want to enjoy it for a bit before stressing right. myself out about the next thing. But um, yeah, uh, you'll be the first to know, Steve. As okay, soon as we, uh, but there will be a next thing. There will I, be a next. Well, it depends how well the uh, Atlas of the Invisible does, I guess, in terms of whether we how well we would push out, you know, another publication of of, of this kind. But I'm, I'm I'm optimistic about it, and I would love to, you know carry on creating maps in this way so definitely there will be future projects for sure great great look forward to it so the final question for you james you've been a friend of geomob for ages and ages i think you must have been to some of the very earliest geomobs that we ever held what's your favorite moment from attending geomob well i've yeah i've given a couple of geomob talks over the years and i think it was great it was a great experience. You know, the audiences themselves are always kind of friendly and open. I think it gives a real sense of kind of like, it instilled me 
with the excitement about geospatial and the excitement about you know what this data can do and it's actually a window for me into the kind of the more commercial stuff so i really enjoy you know i can stand up and i I think the first geomob talk i did was presenting a tube map of life expectancy and you know i'm in the fortunate position that i can create that kind of stuff as part of my day job and then i don't then have to go off and sell it as a product to someone (laughs) whereas you know the nice thing about geomob is you get the people pitching you know, oh, you get people pitching their their latest ideas, and I remember Splash Maps. You know, uh, right. for when they did their their talk of printed scarves and and so on, and it just was a a great way, and is a great way for me to see what the next big thing's going to be in in the kind of geospatial industry side of things. So we're going to go back to live geomobs. I'm not quite sure whether we're going to get one in November. There's a chance we'll get one in November. And I'm going to make certain that Ed Freifogel gets in touch with you because we really should get you back to Geomob with the book and some slides from the book because that audience is going to love it. James, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always. Always fun to catch up. Shame that we can't drink a beer at the end of this, but um, you've probably got to go back to work, and certainly I do. So, James Cheshire, thank you so, so much for being on the Geomob podcast. Listeners, I'm going to say it for the very last time. Go out and get this book, The Atlas of the Invisible. It's in all your favorite online and physical bookshops. It's in that specialist bookshop in the Soho area, which is full of maps of all sorts. It's on the people that we won't mention on this podcast, but who sell books very cheaply. Go and get it. Enjoy it. James, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.